Today's sermon text is John chapter 19, verses 28 through 42, and is found on page six of your worship folder. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily, and thank you, Tiffany, for playing piano. Good Friday is a month away now, but in the text before us, the day is Good Friday. And on this Friday, in the gospel according to John, Jesus, who is the word of God in the flesh, Jesus is now going to die. And as we have seen in the previous weeks, he is not going to die a a peaceful, calm death where he is celebrated, but he is going to die in a very violent, excruciating way. When, When I was growing up, I was always very confused by the term Good Friday. We would go to a Good Friday service. It was a service usually at noon. It was a very somber service. We would sing hymns like Man of Sorrows or Sacred Head Now Wounded. The, the, the tone of the service was always very muted. And this, this, this made sense to me. I, I figured if the service was to remember the day that Jesus died, then it should be a somber service. I, I get that. But why then do we call it Good 
Friday. I, I was confused by the word good. What, what, what is so good about this day, a day that somebody has died? Why is it not sad Friday or somber Friday? Why, why are we using the word good? Many of you know that my mother passed away this past fall. It was a very difficult season leading up to her death was very difficult, and then the actual day was extremely difficult. I would never describe that as a good time in my life, and the actual day was not good at all. It was quite terrible. It was devastating. Cried all day long. Typically, good days are not seen as the day of death. These are typically opposite terms. And so why then on this Friday do we call it Good Friday? Now, of course, there's nowhere in in the actual Bible that says it should be titled Good Friday. This is a term that has come into use later on, but still, throughout the ages, every branch of the church has agreed that this is Good Friday, is a term that the church has latched onto. And so, that is the question before us today. What is so good about this very terrible day? And to answer that question, we are going to look at one phrase in verse 30. In your bulletin, the one phrase is, it is finished. In English, that is three words. In Greek, though, it is actually just one long word. It is finished is one Greek word, tetelestai. And so this sermon is going to be unpacking one word. Every now and then, Somebody from Redeemer will come up to me and say, Pastor, you are very good at talking for a very long time about very short verses. I don't know if that's a compliment or a critique, but this, though, is going to be a first for me. We're going to spend our entire sermon looking at this one simple Greek word. The reason for one sermon on one word is because this one word should make a massive difference in your life. This one word, to tell us this one word is what separates Christianity from every other world religion, including even the religion of secular culture. This one word is the very center of the gospel, which is the center of Christianity, which is the center of the very reason that God created this world. This one word, to die, it is finished, is sweet gospel news for all those that are stained by sin. And it is the reason why, yes, and in one sense, the scene that we are seeing taking place on Friday is a sad, somber scene, but it is, in an even truer sense, it is a very good day because of this very one word. The context for this one word is now Jesus is on the cross. After all that he has gone through before the high priest and before Pilate, he is now just moments before his death. As you just heard read, the, the, the soldiers, they would walk around and they would, they would break the legs of the thieves on the cross. The reason for this is because when, when you're hanging from a cross, it is very hard to breathe. The weight of your body is pressing down, and so it's very difficult to breathe. And so these thieves would then press up with their feet to, to gasp for a little more air. And these soldiers getting impatient, they, they would walk around with a, a, a bat and they would just you know, whack your legs, break your legs, and so that you would collapse. You could no longer push up to breathe. And so this was a way of helping you die more quickly, die from suffocation. 
And so the soldiers are breaking the legs of the other thieves, but they get to Jesus and they realize Jesus is already dead and therefore they do not need to break his bones. Just to make sure, they get a spear and then they stab it in his side and out comes blood and water showing that Jesus is in fact dead. Obviously, I am not a doctor at all, but apparently it does happen in the upper cavity of your body that if you have been heavily injured, that your blood and sort of bodily fluids can mix together. And so this is not, you know, pure H2O, you know, distilled water coming out. This is just sort of more like clear bodily fluids mixed with blood that are coming out. However it works medically, the, the, the clear point here is that Jesus is dead. The body of Jesus is taken from the cross. The body is prepared with spices. It is bound with linen cloths, and then it is then placed in a tomb, which is located in a garden. It's the end of the story, or so you might think, but as we will see next week, it is not actually the end of the story. But the question, though, is not what is going to happen next. The question for this morning is, why is this good news? Why is this a good Friday? What exactly does Jesus mean when he says, it is finished? Now, on on a quick reading, you might think this is just Jesus referring to his life. Like, I'm finished. My life is finished. But the word tetelestai doesn't let us go in that direction. If you listen very carefully to the word tetelestai, you might hear the word teleos, in there, if you've ever studied philosophy, this is a very philosophical term, the telos. The telos is the word for the end goal. It's the word for, for purpose. And so when Jesus is saying, it is finished, this is Jesus not speaking as a defeatist. This isn't Jesus like, like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, just, oh, you know, woe is me, everything's bad, I'm finished, it's finished, I'm down. Now, when you look at this word, Jesus is actually proclaiming something here. What he is saying is, the, the reason that I have come, the telos for why I have come, my mission, my task, the end goal for my life, that task has now been completed and finished. Imagine if you were a medical research. And the entire aim of your life was to solve cancer. And so you went to school and got a lot of degrees. And you have spent many long nights in a laboratory. And you have much more stretch, many more gray hairs, because you've been trying to figure out the purpose of your life. How can you solve cancer? And then one night, you actually do it. You solve it. You would say, it's finished. I've done it. The goal that was before me is now complete. That's what Jesus is saying here. All that I, I, the second person of the Trinity, I, word of God in the flesh, all that I have been asked to do in my life from God the Father, my role, my task, my purpose, it is now done, it is finished. So we need to ask, well, what then is the telos? What was the task that was before Jesus? If you were to go back to John chapter 17, this is the high priestly prayer, And we see that same word there, the the teleos. And so we figure out from the high priestly prayer, what is the mission of Jesus? And we see that the mission of Jesus in John 17 
is that he has come to glorify God by redeeming sinners so that sinners might know God. That's the reason. That's that's the purpose of Jesus. Jesus has come for the singular mission to glorify God by giving eternal life to his people so that his people might know God. That's why Jesus has come. He has come to make you know God. You see, you were created for God, but your sin has caused a chasm between you and God. And so Jesus has come to get you back to God. That's the mission of Jesus. That is his singular mission. Now, yes, of course, Jesus cares for poor people. Yes, of course, Jesus cares for the marginalized. Yes, of course, Jesus cares about injustice and systems. And there are other things that he cares about. But those are all secondary to his primary mission, which is the mission of restoring you back to God. And sadly, what is happening in the world today is that people are now assigning different missions to Jesus that were not his direct marching orders from God. So what's happening in our culture today is people want a Jesus who has the mission of leading their political party, whether it be the party of blue or the party of red. You can baptize your party in the name of Jesus. So people who want a Jesus whose mission is a social justice warrior, people want a Jesus whose mission is a, a business leader, an organizer of people, or people want a Jesus whose mission is that of a motivational speaker and a spiritual guru that helps you know yourself better. Or people want a Jesus whose main mission is creation care or mission is the defender of free markets. But you see, Jesus was given a much more important mission. There is nothing more important that Jesus was assigned than to get you back to God. That's why he has come. So then we ask, well, how is Jesus going to fulfill this mission? How is Jesus going to get you back to God? There's two things that he needs to do. The first thing we see from the very beginning of the Bible that God has said Obey me, and you shall live. This was the first command given to Adam, and that is a conditional statement. If you obey, then you shall live. But Adam did not obey, therefore he needed to die. And me and you and everyone else, since Adam is doing the same thing, that condition is not being met. We are not obeying God like we have been commanded to do. And even worse than that, it's not just that we we do some bad things. Our entire nature, our entire being has been corrupted. The condition for life has not been met. Therefore, the first aspect of Jesus' mission was that he had to obey. Jesus has to obey in our place. If we want to know God, there needs to be an active obedience in our place. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He needed to live. He needed to obey in our place. And Jesus did that. Jesus loved his enemies. He loved his parents. Jesus was sexually pure. Jesus displayed the fruits of the Spirit, peace, patience, gentleness, and so on. Jesus was also willing to take a courageous stand for God the Father, even though the opposition was against him. The condition 
of obedience to God is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus loved his neighbors as himself because he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so for us to know God, an active obedience is required. And this is what Jesus has done. He has actively obeyed in our place. But there's also more. Because we have fallen into sin, there is a debt that needs to be paid. The wages of sin, Paul tells us. The wages of sin is death. See, in in any just system, when there is an infraction, there is a debt that needs to be paid. So if you slam your car into another person's car on the Lodge Freeway, you owe them a new car. There is a debt that needs to be paid. You, you kill somebody, you owe your life to them. And since God is the highest of all beings, any infraction against him is treated to an even higher standard. You see, you see we live in an age where we treat God very lightly. We treat God like he is a, a cosmic grandpa, you know, just God's up in heaven and he's sitting on a cloud and so wants to give you a big warm hug and to sit on his lap and he'll give you a, a Werther's candy and he'll sort of affirm your, your mistakes in life. But make no mistake, when you actually read the Bible, that is not how God is presented in the scriptures. You go against God and there is a severe payment that needs to be made. The highest of payment is the payment of life. And so for years... In decades and centuries leading up to the cross, lives were taken as substitutes, lambs that were offered up in the place of the people. There were payments that were paid to God to satisfy the debt that was owed. So there are two things that are needed for us to know God. There is an active obedience that is required, and there is a passive death that is required. And those two things, that is the mission of Jesus. That is why Jesus has come. He has come to obey in our place and he has come to die in our place. So starting at the very beginning of the gospel story, starting with a virgin mom giving birth to a son in a dirty Bethlehem manger. Now all of that story culminating with Jesus hanging as a cursed man on the cross. All of that was his mission. That was his teleos. That was his plan so that you might know God. And so now, just moments before he is about to die, moments before he is about to make the ultimate payment, Jesus is now going to say, that plan is finished. This plan that has been eternal in age, unfolding for the three decades of the life of Jesus, that plan is now finished. It's accomplished. It's complete. It's done. 
There is no more work left to be done. It's over. Let's go back to the Greek word, to telestai. One of the difficulties that the translators have is that you are translating the Greek New Testament into English, and there's just some differences in the two languages. One of the most difficult things to translate would be the Greek perfect tense. And so in English, we have the past tense. You might say, I have done my homework. We also have the future tense where you would say, I will do my homework. But we do not have what the Greeks had, which is the perfect tense, which at the same time touches on both the past and the future. And so the Greek perfect tense, how you would understand it is that this action that has been completed in the past is so perfect, it's so final, it's so complete, that the implications for this past action are going to extend forever into the future. It's a tense that is not used very often because it is somewhat rare. And this one word here, John chapter 19, verse 30, this very important word to telestai, is actually in the Greek perfect tense. Which means, if you are in Christ, that work is so finished, so perfectly complete. It's happened in the past, it's done, it's over, and the implications for that are going to extend forever into the future, extend even into your life right now. It's done, it's over. What Jesus has been assigned in his life at his death, it is now done. And that is going to last for all of eternity into the future. I just want to make this explicitly clear, because I don't want any one of you walking out of church this morning with any gray in this area. I do not want you to be mistaken. The work that is needed for you to know God depends entirely 100%, it depends entirely on what Jesus has done in the past. It's his work. It belongs to him, and it is finished, meaning you have no part to play in the salvation story. It's his work. It is not yours. And if you act as though it depends on you and not on him, then you do not understand how free grace really is. This is the work of Jesus. It is not yours, and it is done. There's nothing you can do that will add to it nor take away from it because it is his work. The gospel is the story of the Lamb of God who has died to take away the sins of the world so that you might be forever right with God the Father. It is his work, and it's free, and it's complete. You know, one of the accusations of true gospel preaching is that some people will say, it, it just can't be that complete. It, it can't depend entirely on Jesus because then there's nothing for me to do. It's actually one of the accusations that the Catholic Church had against Martin Luther. The, the, the church was saying, Luther, if the gospel is that free, and if your understanding of, of John 19 that the work is this complete, then there's actually not going to be any motivation for people to obey God. 
Now, of course, there are, are plenty of reasons for why this is a better motivation to obey God, but, but we can save that motivation for a different sermon for a different week. But I, I just want to ask, have you actually ever struggled with that question? That if the work of Jesus is this free, if it's this finished, if it's this complete, that, that we can just do whatever we want. If it depends entirely on him and not on us, does that just mean that I am free to just sin and, and, and live for the world and just live for myself? Of course, the, the answer is no, but, but let me just say, if you haven't really wrestled with that question, if you haven't really had to, to think through that, that, that tension, then perhaps you are in danger of not understanding just how gracious and finished the work of Jesus is. If you are asking that question, that means you're starting to get how free it is. This is from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher, died in the, the 80s, and he, uh, his response to this critique is, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. It's a good sign if you're wrestling with that tension. There was a YouTube clip that was going around uh, the internet recently. It was a clip of Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is a, a pastor in the Cleveland area. Alistair Begg is Scottish, and so everything he says just sounds really profound. But this, this was actually a really good clip. And he, he was asking, again, this, this question. The, the, the old question that many used to use came out of a church in Fort Lauderdale. If, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, why would God let you in to heaven? And if you answer that question in the first person, then you have totally misunderstood what Jesus means by it is finished. If you answer that question by saying, I believe in Jesus, I've accepted Jesus, I obey Jesus, I go to church, I trust Jesus, I've been baptized, if the emphasis is on you in the first person, then you missed it. You see, the answer to that question depends not on the first person, but on the third person. It's because he lived, Jesus, because Jesus has died, because Jesus has accepted me. That's the reason. Think of the thief on the cross that just had his legs broken by Jesus. Was, was that thief baptized? Did that thief ever go to a church? Did that thief ever have a vibrant prayer life? Did that thief ever even have an opportunity to obey? No. Jesus say, it's, it's on the grounds of Jesus' life. He, third person, that's the reason. It's his work. Here Jesus is saying in the most emphatic possible way, it is finished. I've done it. I, Jesus, have done it. 
And this has massive implications for your life. When it really grips you just how free the gospel is, just how finished the work of grace is, it has massive implications for your life. It means that you can actually have peace with God. You don't have to, to fret. Am I doing enough or have I sinned too much that I can never be accepted by Jesus? Because the work depends not on you, but it depends on him. Contrary to the Catholic concern, because it is finished, this means you actually can obey God with a free heart. It's finished. Jesus is saying the root of sin in your heart has been severed. Therefore, you are now actually free. Before God, you are seen as a new man, as a new woman that has the ability to actually obey God, not out of fear, but out of delight. Many of our current struggles with anxiety and depression are rooted in understanding, not understanding what Jesus means by it is finished. That we are carrying burdens, that we're trying to add to our salvation. We're not resting in the finished work of Jesus. This finished work impacts not just you, but it impacts how we relate to other people. It is finished has massive implications for how you relate to others. If your marriage is struggling, knowing that the mission has been accomplished for your spouse, so even though they might have lots of sins and faults and blemishes, when you understand that the work in the ultimate sense is finished for them, that they've been accepted and made right before God, does not the approval of God the Father through, through Jesus Christ does that not mean more than your judgment over them? Therefore, you should view them in light of what Jesus has done? You know, speaking of conflict between different racial backgrounds, you know, there, there's so much in our culture today that, that's so heated and, and pits different people against one another. But for brothers and sisters in the church, brothers and sisters in the Lord that come from different ethnic backgrounds, for, for, for Christians, if, if, if the finished work is true for both us and for them, then the biggest work of reconciliation has already happened. Oh, yes, of course, there should be honest conversations about past sins, sins and repenting and conversations about you know, power dynamics of the majority and minority. Those are all very important conversations, but does not the tone just radically change when we enter into the conversation knowing that for both sides, it is finished. That justice has been satisfied. That grace has been extended. Knowing that, that Jesus has finished it for you reorients how you think for others. This one verse has massive implications for how you understand your relationship to God and your relationship to the world, when you get the gospel, it is going to deeply and profoundly change you. Compare what Jesus is saying here to leaders of other world religions. Jesus is saying, it is finished. Buddha, on the other hand, the last words of Buddha were, strive without ceasing. So Jesus is saying, stop working, rest. Buddha is saying, you got to work harder. From the Quran, it reads, to those who believe and do deeds of righteousness, hath Allah promised forgiveness. 
So the same thing there. You, you, you want to be forgiven by Allah? Then you better do deeds of righteousness. Some of the religions of, of pop culture, the religion of the fitness world says, you need to eat better, you need to track your calories, you need to work out more. The religion of Wall Street says you need to, to earn more, you need to buy more. The religion of progressive culture says you need to get more involved, you need to find a cause, you need to get active. All day long, from all sorts of angles, we are hearing voices that are telling us to do, do, do. And we feel guilty all the time that we are not doing enough to achieve our maximum self or enough to prove ourselves before God. We are being told to do, to do, and all it does is make us feel more and more guilty. And yet here is Jesus Christ on the cross with his final last words. He is saying to you, the greatest work that has ever needed to be done on your behalf, Jesus says, do not do, but rather, it is finished. All that Jesus has done in his life, all that Jesus has done in his death is to fulfill this one great overarching mission, which is to bring you back to God. That's why Jesus left the glory of heaven and humbled himself to the point of death. That was his end goal. That was his mission. Now, right before Jesus is about to die, Jesus says, that mission that end goal, it's finished. I did it. I fulfilled my role. I complete, completed this role so fully and with such finality, the results of what I have done are going to last forever into the future. So why is this dark, bloody Friday on which a man on a cross died in Jerusalem. Why is this day considered good? Why is this a good Friday? Because on this Friday, the greatest work that was ever needed to be done was brought to completion. It was finished was his cry. And for that reason, it was a very good day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who left the glory of heaven, humbled himself to be born as a man like one of us, born not into a palace or into a castle, but born into a lowly manger to a very average Middle Eastern family. We give you thanks that Jesus, throughout his life, actively obeyed you in every action, in heart, in mind, in deed. He never disobeyed, he never fell short. We thank you for your son Jesus, that, that while he was innocent, that he hung on a cross to pay for the penalty of sin. Oh Jesus, we now lift our hearts to you, we lift our voices to you, we offer our lives to you, not as any sort of repayment, but as full worship for all that you have done for us in both your life and death. Jesus, we thank you that you are so sufficient that you were able to confidently say, it is finished. It's in your name we pray, amen.